Welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. So today I am here with Amy. For those who might not know you, can you do a quick introduction, your name, job title, company you work for? Sure, sure. Uh, Amy Vernon. Um, I've joked for a long time that uh, I do stuff on the internet. I right now am director of brand and digital strategy for uh, Kaiju Capital Management, which is a hedge fund manager. And um, I've worked in community and digital marketing and audience development um, for the majority of the past 12 to 13 years. uh, And before that, spent 20 years in traditional newspapers. Awesome. Can you tell me about the most exciting thing that you're working on these days? Yeah, I can't go into too much detail because we haven't launched yet, but I'm working on um, actually a very exciting project that um, uh, really it's going to be uh, it's going to be make or break from the marketing, which means that a lot of that is on my shoulders. But it's uh, at the same time, I feel like it's not a heavy lift because it's a really I, I wish I could be more specific about it. I just can't be yet. It's, it's a really cool project. And I don't think like, as long as we get the message out, I think it's going to hit very easily. It's just a matter of, of actually getting the message out. So right now I'm working with copywriter on the website copy and SEO for um, the website overall, plus um, FAQs for the site and uh, web design team. Uh, the same uh, folks actually who designed our uh, main Uh, our main company websites. Really, they do beautiful, beautiful, beautiful work uh, based in France. Uh, So working on all of that right now and juggling, at the same time, I'm also juggling a couple of other website projects um, for work on the side with that. So it's uh, busy, but it's it's a lot of fun. It's it's really getting, I'm getting to use all the different parts of my experience. Absolutely. I know from your background, you have a t- like decades of experience, both working remotely and on hybrid, and on hybrid teams. Um, can mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit more? And it sounds like this is a little bit more remote focused. Can you tell me a little bit more about what's your approach to leading a global team where you might maybe have people in France and potentially all over the world, in the U.S. and potentially elsewhere in the world? And like, what's your approach in terms of building that kind of team collab um, camaraderie? Yeah. Well, you know the 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 most difficult part of it actually is pure logistics and it's finding a uh, a time on the calendar that works for everyone because um, in particular for this project I have people um, on the west coast of the United States three hours behind me I'm on the east coast and um, people as far east as France uh, which is and they're I believe six hours ahead where they are so trying to find I, so basically like late morning is the sweet spot where it's not too early for the West Coast and it's not too late for for France. So the, the most difficult thing initially was just sort of logistics and figuring out days and times that work best, because obviously we never want to do that on a Friday because doing something at the very end of the day for folks on a Friday is just never, you know, never <laughs> the right time to have a meeting. And really early in the morning on a Monday, 
for folks on the on the west coast is is not so really just sorting out the logistics and figuring out what time zones everyone is in i've done some training sessions um for on social media and some other stuff for our company at large and we're in 10 different time zones around the world and so in setting those training sessions i've always made sure to have at least two of them at different times of the day in addition because we're a hedge fund manager we have traders and i can't ask them to take an hour out of the middle of their day uh, so i always have one of those sessions that's after the market closes so just sort of trying to do all that at the very beginning what i would do is i would send in, in a Google form, a survey, asking everybody what time zone you're in, all these different things. And when I would set um, sessions, I would always include the time in US Eastern time, as well as uh, UTC, because outside of the United States, everybody knows what their time zone is pretty much in relation to UTC. And inside the United States, everybody knows what their time zone is in relation to the East Coast. So with those two time zones, everybody can relatively quickly figure out, you know, what time that is for them and, and sort it out. And I actually got that from when I was managing community uh, for a uh, blockchain cybersecurity company and our community members were all over the world. So when we would have um, AMAs or anything like that, I would always make sure to include, uh, at the very beginning, I think I just did, and I, I said, you know, 9 a.m. Eastern US time, and people were like, could you just include uh, UTC so that, you know, outside of the US, it's easier for us to figure out? And I was like, oh, yeah. So that sort of helped me um, when I came to a company where, you know, not just the community, but the employees were literally all over the world. And just doing little things like that, I find A, makes it a lot easier to figure out the logistics, but B, also shows people that you're actually recognizing that they aren't all in the US or they aren't all in your time zone and that you're thinking about what's convenient for them and not just doing what's convenient for yourself. And I think that's one of the most important things is trying to accommodate everyone as best as possible, which isn't always really possible. You know, you, you can't 100% accommodate everyone, but you can do your best and figure out what's least disruptive to the largest number of people. And, you know, I know, if I were on the other end of that, that I would appreciate that if people were trying to make sure that, you know, I wasn't going to a meeting at midnight, my time, you know? So um, it's, it's really, it's, I think logistics are like, if you do that and you do it right, you've already gone halfway toward, you know, keeping the peace and, and, and sort of building the team because it shows that you're actually considering more than just yourself. Absolutely. And you mentioned talking about having like, you know, people, you know, team members across 10 different time zones. What strategies have you put in place to kind of tailor your content to like, you know, different cultures or different ways of operating? Um, um, well, what's, what's interesting with that is that like, that's like the whole company that's across 10 time zones. So, you know, most of those people don't you know, don't report to me. 
So it's it's a matter of it's a matter of remembering that when I'm sharing something that that not everybody is in the U.S. and that we do have a lot of different cultures, um, we actually use standard British English for written communications, in part because the founder is Canadian um, and uh, he's also American, but he's he's Canadian by birth and um, much prefers British spellings. But also a lot of our, uh, the majority of our staff is either is, we have uh, folks in India and Pakistan and in the UK and, uh, and in Europe. And so British English is the standard for more people in the company than American English. Um, so, you know, at the very beginning, when I was working on the website, I asked my boss, I was just like, you know, are we going with American English or are we going with British English? And he was like, British English. And it's like, okay. And it's, it's again, a lot of it really, it's, it's funny because I, I think a lot of people just forget that logistics are, are a big part of, of anything. But we also, um, during Diwali and Holly, a couple of um, very, I hope I pronounced those correctly, um, uh, a couple of very important holidays in, in uh, the Indian subcontinent, you know, we, we wish everybody, you know, a happy holiday for that. And, you know, a couple of us are Jewish and, and some people celebrate, you know, Christmas. And so it's sort of remembering that there are all these different cultures and holidays and that. Um, we didn't send a, holiday, a a Christmas card to everybody at the end of the year. We sent a New Year's card to everybody at the end of the year because everybody celebrates the New Year in some way, shape, or form, you know, across the world. And so it was sort of like that was a common celebration and sort of a good time to sort of reflect on the previous year more so than, you know, like a Christmas card would be. Um, but it was something that we uh, that we discussed, and we're, and and you know, uh, the CTO was saying, you know, a lot of our uh, a lot of our folks don't celebrate Christmas, and and you know, we were like, well, what about you know New Year's? That's you know, everybody does celebrate that, so let's um, make that what we're is the impetus for sending out this card, uh, you know, at the end of the year. Because I mean, truth be told, it really is because it's the end of the year that you're sending that that card and reflecting back on the year to everybody anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. Shifting gears a little bit. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? And do you think introverts or extroverts make better leaders? Oh, that's, uh, it's funny. I was just listening to a podcast yesterday called uh, um, You're Wrong About, and they were talking about how all these like cult leaders um, are sort of extreme extroverts and they were wondering, you know, like if introverts would make better leaders and then they were joking that, you know, introverts don't want to actually lead anything. Um, <laughs> I actually think that uh, I, I'm a hybrid introvert. I, I'm, I call myself an extroverted introvert because when I'm in the social situations, I appear extroverted and I, I sort of am, I'm animated and I'll talk to people but it does take a little bit for me to, to um, start talking to new people. And when I'm out of the social situation, I really like being back at home and closing the door and not having to speak to anyone. And I've gone days where 
uh, I've been alone in the house and it's been like noon and I haven't uttered a single word yet. And I'm just thinking, wow, that is great. Um, as to who, uh, who makes better leaders, I, I don't know. I think there's, there, there are definite benefits and drawbacks uh, in both cases. I think in an in-person situation, um, a, an extrovert may, may be a better leader, maybe in terms of like team building because you're, you're sort of there and you're in-person. Uh, where I think in the, in the more uh, remote world, I think that introverts are more comfortable uh, working by themselves in their homes. I mean, there have been a lot of jokes over the last year and a half about how this is, you know, an introvert's dream working from home um, and, and not having to be around people all the time. But there is some truth to that where um, we tend to be a lot more comfortable by ourselves and not surrounded by people. So maybe in this you know, sort of remote world that we're in right now, that is a more useful skill because you're not, you're not longing for that in-person interaction in the same way. I do know, I do have friends who are very extroverted who uh, particularly at the beginning, I think everybody's sort of gotten into a rhythm by this point uh, in terms of remote work, but I know at the beginning that um, I knew extroverted people who had a much harder time of it because they get that energy from being around other people, whereas introverts get that energy from not being <laughs> around other people. Absolutely. And I know in like previous roles, you managed communities uh, like in the blockchain and in the crypto space. Can you tell me a little bit more about what your involvement was in that space and how like your community background was an asset? Sure. Um, the thing that uh, was really interesting about blockchain slash crypto is that uh, particularly at, uh, at that point, which we're talking about 2018, the height of the whole um, uh, ICO craze and, and all that. And I was there from 2018 till 20, uh, no, 2017 until 2019, I was, I was doing that. So in 2017 was, was really the height of that. It really was about community and building community because you had all these people who were buying tokens. Now, it wasn't community in the traditional sense where you know, say you're a, a news site or a, you know, retail company and you're gradually building community over time through your content or other things. This was sort of like you had an ICO and suddenly you had a quote unquote community, except a lot of these people really were interested only because they had bought tokens and they weren't necessarily even interested in the project. And so they were looking at it purely as an investment, whether, uh, whether or not you considered, considered your tokens to be an investment or a utility or, or you know, whatever you considered your tokens to be. So you're sort of faced with this unruly group, extremely international group of people who have, have skin in the game. They've actually spent money betting that you're going to succeed. 
and they want to know every day what you've done toward to that end. And you have a lot of people who will be very negative uh, until they see uh, until they see results in that direction, and they'll be very vocally negative. There's no shyness on their part. Uh, and the real trick there was finding the people who, yes, they had uh, bought into the ICO, um, and so they did have have money riding on it, so to speak, but they did it because they thought the project was interesting as opposed to uh, they thought that they were going to make a killing. I mean, obviously, if they put some money in, they thought that it was going to succeed or that it had a good chance to because they thought it was a good project. But the reason they invested wasn't solely because they wanted it to go to the moon, as they say. They chose the project because they found it interesting and they thought that the project could could succeed and yes, they would, uh, they would do well, but they were also happy to see this technology or whatever this project was uh, succeed. So it's a very different way to build community. Whereas usually when you're building community, um, your community members are primarily people who like you and have been drawn to you because of your content, because of your uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Because of your um, uh, customer service, because of your products, because of your quality. Um, they've initially been drawn in by factors that they see as positive and they start on the outside and you're building it by drawing them in. Whereas in a case like this, it's almost like you're, you're have this huge amount to start with and you need to dig into that to find the people who are actually interested in what you're doing and cultivate those relationships. Yeah, that's a really great way of putting it. How did you, going back to you know, 2017, 2018, how did you go about cultivating and finding those people within the community? Um, I would notice sometimes that when some folks, you know, obviously you can't be online 24 um, seven. And we did have a couple of people in different time zones. So we had it covered most of the time. But um, even then, you know, you're doing other things, you're not necessarily like sitting there just staring at telegram all day. Um, I would notice sometimes when some of the negative folks would come up and start asking questions or not even the negative folks, maybe someone new who had just discovered the token and had just come in and was curious and asking some questions. There were some community members who would um, jump in and, uh, and, and start answering them. Um, and in that way, it's a little bit, you know, just like any other community where, you know, you see the community members who are really invested and, and you start cultivating those relationships. So I would often um, send them you know, a private message saying, oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, sometimes we'd send a little swag or something like that. Um, but we'd, you know, make sure that these folks knew that we saw what they were saying and what they were doing and that we appreciated it. So in a way, it was, it was that part of it was like with any other community where you just see the people who are really, invested from a 
I don't want to say emotional viewpoint, but from, you know, just on, on a deeper level uh, and, and just making sure that those people know that they're seen and, you know, also, you know, publicly thanking to say, oh, well, you know, there was this one woman, Brooke, who um, she was in Australia. So very often when I was just getting uh, into the office and I would, I would pop in there, I would see her responding to people because that was her evening and she was often on there right before she, you know, would go to bed. So, you know, I'd be like, I'd publicly say, oh, thank you, Brooke. That was really great. You know, absolutely what Brooke said and maybe add a couple of things onto it or something, but make sure that also the community would see that, that these folks who were answering were on the right track and were actually um, correct and that we appreciated. Absolutely. How did you go about managing the more negative members in the community and yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, and this is and this is something that everybody in in every blockchain crypto community, I think, has had to deal with at some point or another. Um, you know, one of the things we did was when things would start getting, you know, obviously when the crypto market would go down, there would be and and honestly, that was generally it was the entire market would go down, but then in all these smaller projects, that's where people would start shouting the loudest. Um, so we'd have uh, the CEO or the CTO or someone pop in and do uh, an AMA on the fly. And there was one time where, where people were getting really, really anxious and nervous and upset and angry. And, um, and I just, I honestly, I put my foot down and I said, look, we've answered all of these questions multiple times. You got an hour and a half of the CEO's time yesterday. There's obviously nothing else that we're going to say that is, is going to be any different. And, um, you know, if any of you who keep asking the same questions over and over again, cause that's really the point we were at, um, you're going to get a warning and then you're going to get a ban for the weekend. Cause I think it was like a Thursday or Friday. I said, I'm not going to permanently ban you. I don't feel like anybody should be permanently banned unless they're abusive to other community members. But, you know, you basically gonna have a timeout. I was like, I'm a mom, you're gonna have a timeout because you're, you're being disruptive to the whole community. And um, one person actually, I did do that with, and he was gone for the weekend. And on Monday, I went back to him. I said, are you gonna, you know, keep asking these questions or can I let you back in? And I ended up letting them back in. So people saw that we were being responsive, but when it got to the point where all they were doing was complaining anymore, that we, were, we, we weren't going to let the community just be that because it's not fair to everybody else who's there. Um, so really that, uh, that helped at some point or another. Um, you know, communities can become really toxic. I, I, um, uh, I'm not really sure. You know what happened too much when I left. I mean, like a lot of startups, it didn't, uh, it didn't end up succeeding. So of course, people were upset about that. But you know, you could say that about any startup that doesn't succeed. Absolutely, and just like holistically, where do you see the direction of blockchain and crypto headed in the next uh, few years? Mm. 
well, if I really knew, then I'd probably be rich somewhere. But um, <laughs> I think that um, there's there's going to be a lot more uh, quote unquote legitimacy. And I, I really do want to put that word in quotes because, you know, what is legitimate? And of course, there's plenty of corruption in any sphere, whether it's government or private enterprise or, you know, anything. Um, but I just, I think like sort of the legitimizing in the public mind of all of these alternate currencies, we see more and more of the big financial institutions getting involved and they're getting involved because it's becoming more of the norm. I mean, I don't know if we're going to see widespread uh, adoption of any in the next five years or so. And truthfully, I'm always baffled whenever anybody says that they think that um, Bitcoin or Ethereum should be uh, um, you know, adopted as, as currency because so many people, first of all, they're extremely volatile and you don't want an extremely volatile currency. Why would you want to spend your Bitcoin or your, your partial Bitcoin, your Satoshi, um, buying something when you're hoping that it's going to go to $50,000 per Bitcoin. You know, it's, it's one of those things that's sort of always baffled me. Um, so I, I don't necessarily see those um, becoming more mainstream as currency, as, as stores of value, um, certainly, and seeing the rise of more stable crypto. I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about stable coins and I think there really is, um, there really is something to, uh, to the stable coin because um, it can be a universal currency in a sense without having that volatility. That means that, you know, the token you, used to buy something today isn't worth five times more or five times less tomorrow. Because if you're the person receiving it, you want it to be worth more tomorrow. And if you're the person spending it, you probably want it to be worth less tomorrow. Um, so having that stability makes it more likely that both people are willing to use that. Because at the end of the day, no one's really gonna be willing to spend uh, crypto that they really think is going to go up in value unless they're doing it as um, sort of to show, to show that they have this and that they're in, you know, in on understanding the whole crypto thing. I just like, like I said, if you think that Bitcoin is gonna double or triple in value over the next five years, why would you spend it now? I just don't understand that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and kind of still in the crypto space. I don't know if you've been following the NFT, NFT, mm -hmm. kind of that craze around. Um, I'd be curious to hear, what's your opinion on that? Oh, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of, I think a lot of it just sort of like anything else at the very beginning of, of its life. Um, a lot of a lot of what has been sold as, as NFTs are, are kind of silly. I have seen 
some artists create digital art, like actual digital art for to be an NFT as opposed to um, just digitizing something else. Because honestly, like true digital art is not just digital versions of the Mona Lisa. I could have a poster on my wall that is um, of the Mona Lisa. And that to me is the same thing as having a digital version of the Mona Lisa. Neither of them is the actual painting. Neither of them has the, you know, our Starry Night where I've seen it in the MoMA. You go up to Starry Night and you see the brush strokes and all of that is actually part of the work of art itself. That feeling of movement, not just in the colors and the swirls, but actually the thickness of the paint in, in various spots. Whereas, truly digital art has been created digitally. And if you had a print of that, or if you had a version of that in any way other than, than in a digital form, it would be like having a poster of it because it wouldn't be the same thing. You wouldn't have the same experience with that piece of art. So I think the whole idea of just sort of digitizing art and, and selling them as NFTs is, is if you're doing that as, um, as a digital version of a poster, then sure, I guess, you know, you could buy posters, why not buy a digital version? And you can, you know, you now have these digital picture frames and stuff that you can use or project it onto the wall or something, you know, if you're into that, great. But that's not worth the same amount that a truly digital piece of art is. Um, this one guy I follow, Rob Sheridan, he used to be art director for uh, Nine Inch Nails back in the day. Um, and he created some pieces of digital art as NFTs. And I thought that that was really interesting because these were new, they were 3D and motion and they, they were created to be these one of a kind pieces of digital art, which most digital art really isn't because it's like you can go and you can see it and then anybody can, can you know, copy it. Whereas if you have a way to license this and to prevent copies for the most part, I mean, like anything else, there are counterfeits of, of physical art. So I'm, I have no doubt that people will be able to figure out how to counterfeit digital art. Um, but if it's signed uh, digitally, that's a, that is harder, particularly if it's on the blockchain because that is immutable and it's, it is harder to counterfeit. Um, so I, I think it's interesting. I, I don't dismiss it completely like many have. I, but I also don't think it is the greatest thing since, you know, sliced bread and it's gonna solve all the problems of uh, creators and creatives online. That's a fascinating take. How do you, I don't know if you've been following some of the communities that are springing up around some of the NFT developments and if so, like, do you, like, I mean, what is, I guess I guess to reiterate this way, is like, what is your take around kind of some of the communities that are springing up around some of these bigger NFT projects? 
Um, you know, truthfully, I haven't really followed it that much because there's, you know, it's, it used to be if you were involved in online community, I mean, we remember like when, you know, community meetup was first created and it was like, you know, 30 people in a conference room at AOL or something, you know, um, it used to be that, you know, when you were involved in community, even if it was an area outside of your direct um, uh, vertical, you know, outside of the industry that you were in, um, it was, you kind of knew what was going on in general. Um, but there, you know, it's expanded so much because there's so many new technologies and so many new areas now that I, I truthfully, I haven't, I, I'm aware basically of what's going on with NFTs, but I am not aware on any deep level. A few lightning round questions that I like to ask all. all sure. Asked. If you had to write a book tomorrow, what would you write it about? Oof, God. Um, it's funny because uh, uh, because it's something I've thought about a lot and I've never really thought of the book I want to write. I actually want to, um, uh, I actually want to do a book on, on how Gen X is the, uh, the, the missing puzzle piece in society. That's fascinating. What do you mean? <laughs> um, everybody just talks about uh, boomers and, and millennials all the time. And now Gen Z. And like nobody ever talks about Gen X. And in a way we kind of like it that way, but also we really are this bridge between um, sort of the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things and are maybe the only ones who understand how to move between both of those worlds. And also we, work really well alone because you know a lot of us were coming home to empty houses after school and making our own meals and and you know getting our homework done by ourselves i mean we were very even and even if you had parents at home it was just like you were still pretty much doing everything by yourself like you weren't uh, and, and I mean, like, I'm a parent now and my kids are Gen Z and I definitely didn't do that with them, you know, like leave them to their own devices. But we were just like totally left to our own devices. We were outside forever. But then somewhere along the line when we were, you know, teens or preteens, there suddenly became that whole stranger danger fear where suddenly that all changed. So we're very much this like bridge generation. And um, I just I just think that uh, our our skills and our abilities are very often overlooked because everybody else is so large and so loud, and we are not large and we are not loud. That's a really fascinating take that I'm not sure if I've ever heard before, but it makes a ton of sense. While well, on the topics of books. What's one book that you recommend that all community builders uh, should read? You know, I'm not a big business book person, um, but uh, 
I, I do have on my desk right now. And I think that this kind of book um, is, is uh, applicable, um, is, is important for anyone, whether we're talking about community or not. Um, it's, uh, it's called Plantation Theory uh, by John Graham. And it's the black professional struggle between freedom and security. Because I think right now, understanding, um, uh, particularly, for, particularly for white people, um, understanding the, the um, so understanding society at large and understanding the uh, how people, particularly in America, in particular um, Black and Native peoples, have to contort themselves and um, be someone other than 100% themselves in the everyday. And frankly, that applies to, you know, as part of community or running a community and in, in a lot of different ways. And I think that women can um, relate to this to certain degrees, you know, women at large, not, you know, obviously there are black women and native women who have that as well as uh, um, uh, racial issues that they're facing. Um, I just, I think it's very important right now to, to educate ourselves and better about um, racial and ethnic disparities and our part in them and how to recognize them. And I think that that um, applies to community, but it applies to everything. That's a really, really great point. And shifting just a little bit, but if you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose and why? Mm. Huh. That's very interesting because it would probably change depending on my mood. But if I had to, well, I'll just say one of the first people who who come who came to mind, um, and I don't particularly know why she did, um, but I'd be really fascinated to to sit down with Joan of Arc because I'm really curious, like how much of what we know is actually fact and like what is just like this made up story that we've been told through the centuries. Love it. And I can continue <laughs> chatting with you for hours, but want to be respectful of your time. Um, where can, before we wrap up, where can listeners find you online? I am at Amy Vernon almost everywhere. I think the only platforms where I didn't get that were um, uh, Last FM, if anybody remembers that one. Uh, and uh, uh, Gmail, <laughs> believe it or not. I already had so many email addresses by that point that I was just like, oh, Google with an email? Why will I need that? Uh, and also Snapchat, because I was actually a late adopter to that because I just was so exhausted by the time that came around that I just waited too long and didn't secure my username. <laughs> but pretty much everywhere um, that I'm active, Amy Ver at well Amy Vernon. I love the consistency. I was on Snapchat for a while and then just like completely faded away from that. Um, so I can totally relate. <laughs> um, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. 
Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.